Thank you for listening to the Prairie Oaks Pulpit Podcast. This is a recording of our Sunday morning sermons here at Prairie Oaks Baptist Church in Prairie Grove, Arkansas. Thank you for being a participant in this ministry through this media. And thank you to those who helped make it possible. Now may God bless you and keep you. And let's get to the message. Rest of us, let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 19. We've been going through... Uh, the history of of the the crucifixion, we've unpacked that, and and last week uh, we saw where Jesus he said it was finished, he'd accomplished it, and then he commended his spirit back to the Father, and in that we saw also the contrast between his earlier statements where he rarely called his father God, but he did in that one because he was bearing our sins, that separation. But now the work is finished. And so that communion with the father is restored. But it begs the question, he just got executed as a criminal unjustly. What's going to become of the body? You know, Because the Romans had certain rules on how things were to be taken care of. And he'd already endured our humiliation. He'd already endured our shame. That's what the cross was. Our guilt. And so if it was finished, then what happens next? And the gospel writers, they all focus on what happened next. It's almost interesting that, you know, not a lot of people get their names mentioned in the Gospels, besides obvious Jesus and some of the disciples, but even them, they're not always. But this guy, he gets mentioned by name and location in all four Gospels. And so we're going to talk about him as well. But We're going to look at the 11 verses here, starting in verse 31 and going through verse 42 of John chapter 19. And if you would, out of respect for God's word, would you stand with me? Therefore, because it was the preparation day that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe." For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. 
Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jewish preparation day for the tomb was nearby. Let's pause for prayer. Father, just thankful for the time in your word. I thank you, Lord, for the privilege of singing and, and just uh, the time now to pray and, and, and then just listen to your word. I ask that you help me to accurately teach your word through your Holy Spirit, Lord, and that your word and your spirit would move freely in this place and in children's chapel, Lord, that eyes would be open, hearts would be open, that the lost would be saved, that lives would be transformed, and your name would be praised, for you are a big God. You are the Almighty, and yet you are gracious and merciful and long-suffering, and you are ever faithful to your word and to your character. And so help us, Lord, to see these things and more. Forgive me of the ways I fail you, and in the name of Jesus Christ and for his glory, may he be praised. Amen. You may be seated. So now John and Matthew tell us the most about this this time period here, but we're going to focus mainly on what John has to tell us. And and so John, he brings out, you know, okay, so there's a there's a timetable going on here. That it's it's coming up on the end of the week. Uh, the next day is the Sabbath, and and in the law it prohibited bodies being left out exposed anyways. And especially on a Sabbath, especially on a Sabbath that was part of the Passover days of unleavened bread. And so it was going to be, that's why it says it was a high day. It's a, it's a, it's a holy day. And so it's odd, it seems, but the Jewish authorities, the religious authorities are like, oh, we don't want the land defiled by this. They just murdered an innocent man, but they're, they don't want the land defiled. And maybe it's because they don't want to continue to see the evidence of their murder. We have to wonder. But they ask, and Pilate says, okay, I'll grant that. And so... To hasten death, I use quotation marks, because it's a slow hastening of the death. Because they didn't just kill them. They broke their legs so that they would suffocate faster than they would ordinarily. And so the repentant thief and the other thief, that's what happens to them because they weren't dead yet. But they come to Jesus and they see that he's already dead. Remember, he commended his... He willed his spirit back to the Father. No man could take his life from him anyways, but he would lay it down of his own accord. And so they don't break his legs, but instead one of them takes his, a spear, a lance, it's, but jams it into his rib cage just to make sure he's, he's dead. And the blood and the water flow out. 
And some would say that uh, there's significance in that medically, there's significance in that theologically. Uh, We know that the Old Testament spoke of God opening up a fountain for which sins would be cleansed. And you probably hear that in, in some of our old hymns, right? There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. And so um, I don't doubt that that's what the writer was thinking of as well as many others. But uh, the blood and water flows out. And so they know he is dead. And that plays a role because the other gospel writers bring out that about that time someone was inquiring if they could claim the body of Jesus. And that someone is Joseph of Arimathea. But John wants to to belabor this point here because he wants to make sure we get all of the a complete understanding of what's going on. I don't know, because John wrote after all the other gospel writers, and so I wonder if he was dealing with some of the skeptics of his time when he wrote these things, and he's an eyewitness. He saw these things with his own eyes. It's what he said there, isn't it? He who has seen has testified. It is as though he is putting his hand on the Bible, which at his time would have been Genesis through Malachi. He put his hand on the Bible and put his hand... Up and said, under oath, I'm telling the truth so that you may believe. Because he knows it's more than just believing a testimony. It's about believing who Jesus is and who God is. I've written these things so that you may believe. In fact, on my page on, on John chapter 20, verse 31 He says, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So you may wonder, why are we going and belaboring this point? It's because eternal life hangs in the balance. Are these things so? And if so, do you believe? Do you believe the facts? Do you believe the significance of the facts? Because there's two things going on. You have the testimony of these eyewitnesses, but you also have the testimony of Scripture. If the testimony of the eyewitnesses doesn't measure up to Scripture, Scripture takes precedence. It's the Word of God because it's His eyewitness testimony. The all-seeing God knows. And he said these things before they would even happen. These things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Verse 36, that not one of his bones should be broken. That's from the Psalms. He, he, from Psalm 34. And it says, he shall keep all his bones. Not one of them is broken. But the psalmist there is actually referring back to Exodus when the instructions were given for the Passover lamb, that the Passover lamb would be sacrificed and everything, but not one bone of it should be broken. Not one bone of it should be broken. It just seemed like an interesting part of the instructions, but God is setting forward 
criteria so that we will know his Messiah. And the significance of that is that, I don't know if you've thought about this, but you know, I uh, work at a funeral home and people come and make prearrangements and this is what I want done when I, when I pass away. Jesus didn't do that and he wasn't in the position to make any prearrangements because he was crucified by the Roman authorities. His body is now state evidence. So if he's going to, if those prophecies are going to be fulfilled, it's going to take God to do it. And that's the point. It's going to take God to do it. And so God arranged for that to be fulfilled. Just the same as he foretold in the prophet Zechariah chapter. Where did I put say that one was? I already Zechariah 12. I should have guessed. They shall look on me whom they pierced. They'll look on him whom they pierced. And so again, he was under control to cause that to happen. But the Lord, our God, the creator and sustainer of all life, he arranged for that to take place so that his word would be fulfilled. So that future tense, when he comes again, they will look on the one whom they pierced and they will mourn as one mourns for the death of a firstborn son. And so he's weaving it all together. Just the same as Jesus couldn't manipulate the, uh, uh, the prophecies about his birth, neither about these either. So those are some of the most powerful testimony of who he claims he is because he had no way of fulfilling them himself. God did it. Him as a human being, I should say. So, because he is God. But God is superintending that these things are done. And John says, as an eyewitness under oath, I tell you, I saw the scriptures fulfilled. This is the Messiah we were foretold would come. This is the one we've been waiting for. And so that brings us up to the next significant fact that takes place is this guy, Joseph of Arimathea. Kind of a mystery. He just shows up. He's a member of the high council. He is a member of the ruling Sanhedrin of the Jews. The ones that just had Jesus crucified. Now, he says in the Gospels, he didn't consent to their decree. And so one has to guess that probably him and Nicodemus, when they saw what was going on, they walked out in protest before the decision was made. But they did not consent with what was going on. But the rest of the Sanhedrin was closed-minded, closed-eyed, and refused to believe in the Messiah. And maybe a matter of, rather than cast your pearls before swine, they walked out. And there's times we kind of have to do that sometimes. And, and so they, he waited. But in an amazing turn of events, and it's more amazing when you know some of the details, those that were crucified, if it wasn't for a big crime, then the family could take the body and, and go. You know, no, no big funeral or anything, but you can do what you want with the body. But if you were crucified for sedition, rebellion, or something along that line, nope, that body was to be left to be eaten by vultures 
thrown in the wilderness, thrown in the garbage dump, but they were not going to get a decent burial. That's the way the Romans worked. And so that's, he was crucified for being a rival king, right? So what's going to happen with him is, again, a work of God. And it stands out in that Joseph of Arimathea, he's going to claim the body of Jesus when he doesn't know what the consequences of that will be. Because Pilate was not known for being a just person. He's not known for being uh, above bribery or anything like that. He could easily say, oh, you know this Jesus of Nazareth that I just crucified? Oh, you're one of his friends. Well, then I'll have you crucified as well because he get to pocket everything that Joseph owned. That could happen. That was the way the system worked. But we don't know why, but Pilate agreed. I hope it was out of guilt. It might have been just out of spite to thumb his nose at the rest of the Sanhedrin. It may have been a combination of both. You can use your imagination and figure out what his motives you think they were. But what it really was, was God had said, the price has been paid. My son shall not be humiliated any longer. My son has accomplished the work that I sent him to do. He will now be exalted just as I foretold. Because remember, we quoted Psalm 34 just a minute ago. He shall keep all his bones. Not one of them shall be broken. That keeping means he's not going to be, they're not going to be lost to scavengers. He will be kept. Psalm 1610, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor let your Holy One see corruption. He commended his soul to the Father, so he knew where it was going. But more important in this part of it, nor will you allow my body, this holy body, to see corruption. When, uh, when Jesus, just a few days before this, went to a tomb of a man who'd been buried for four days, what did they say? Don't open it. It's going to stink. But the body of Jesus will not see corruption. In Isaiah 53, 9, as we've read this a lot, because it talks about by his stripes we are healed, that God on him laid the iniquity of us all, that he paid the price. But then it turns at one point in the psalm, in, the, in, the, in this song and within Isaiah, and it says, they made his grave with the wicked. He was crucified with criminals. But then it says, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Suddenly, Jesus is put among the privileged. As Joseph of Arimathea, a very wealthy man, and his buddy Nicodemus, they say, we claim him as one of us. He's my family. I'll take care of him. And Pilate agrees. He takes him. 
And so they take the body and tenderly, they give Jesus the honorable burial among the tombs of the rich there in a garden outside the city walls. It's a new tomb. It's, if you would, a virgin tomb that has saw no corruption. They wrap him in linen cloths, swaddling cloths, if you would so use your imagination, to hold everything together. And he's laid in a shelf, not much different than a manger, in what would have been a stable at that time. We see how the stories overlap, don't they? But they, they do all this. What else is there? Myrrh. Remember we sing about this in our We Three Kings song. Myrrh I give. It's bitter perfume. Because it's pointing to the death. And there it is. Most likely they brought of their own burial things. To have gathered as much as they had for Jesus' burial, which it's a lot. It's comparable to what kings would have been buried with. They gathered all that they had for their own burial to use for Jesus. Joseph uses his own tomb for Jesus. Because whether they understand better than the rest of the disciples what's going to happen, probably not. But they're going to give Jesus their place preeminence in their life. And so sealed away with the heavy stone before eyewitnesses, because the women have stayed faithful through the trial, through the crucifixion, and now they stand outside having watched from a distance the men take care of the body of the Son of Man, Jesus, and put it in the tomb. They are witnesses of where he was laid. They are witnesses of what was done. Because what is God doing? God is setting the stage. The body now has been honored and exalted. It has been put in an honored place in a brand new tomb because he's setting the stage for the greatest miracle in history. He is setting the stage for the first fruits of the new creation to be revealed. Because God knows what's going to happen next. And he wants a clear line of evidence so that nobody can contest. They can try, but the evidence is against them. That this man who was crucified and buried in a brand new tomb so there is no confusion when this body disappears because he is risen from the dead. And that's what we're going to see next week is the resurrection. The new creation. More than just a resuscitation like he did for Lazarus and so many others, more than are even reported, it is God making sure people know, this is my son. This is the one that I love. This is the one I 
treasure. And I am going to superintend this because he's already done the work that I've told him to do. He's suffered humiliation and shame, but not anymore. He'll be given a place among kings because who is he? He's actually the king of kings and Lord of lords. He's coming in just a few days after this to sit at the right hand of the Father to receive the kingdom. And it will be one day what we understand by the witnesses. We will witness ourselves because every eye will see him. Every ear will hear him. Every tongue will confess and every knee will bow that Jesus Christ is Lord. That this one who laid down his life as the sacrificial lamb enduring all the humiliation, all of the shame that we deserve so that we can be exalted. So that we can have a hope that supersedes any grave.